0: What I Believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Clive Lewis is a Labour Party politician and has been the Member of Parliament for Norwich South since 2015, formerly serving as a Shadow Secretary of State for Defence and for Business. He's a former journalist and TV reporter for BBC News and has served as an infantry officer with the Territorial Army in a three-month tour of duty in Afghanistan in 2009. He's also a member of the All-Party Parliamentary Humanist Group and its former chair. Clive Lewis, thank you for joining us on What I Believe.
1: Hi Andrew, lovely to be here.
0: I thought we'd start with something that makes you different from every other guest that has been on our podcast so far is that you have served in the armed forces, including a tour in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And no one else has done that. Uh, who's been? They've either uh, been just young enough to escape national service or they've been much younger and so to, to serve would have had to be uh, a very conscious choice as it was in your case. And I was interested in what it was that motivated you towards that choice.
1: Um, it was a very uh, complex set of uh, life decisions and choices. Um, Some of it goes back to my childhood. My granddad on my uh, mother's side, my English side, uh, had been a, a para in the Second World War in Normandy. and, um, and I, I had a lot of um, I had many conversations. I went with him back to um, Normandy uh, when I was a bit older, and he was a, a lot older. Um, so I, I kind of grew up with his stories of the war, which were very formative on me and also I enjoyed the camaraderie that he shared with others in France. It was something I hadn't experienced in the same way. I mean it, these are I mean it's not romanticized war it's a it's it's rubbish, it's horrible, it's awful but there are in any negative there are sometimes positives that come from that and the camaraderie of those who, Um, stood shoulder to shoulder on whichever side um, is something to behold and something I wanted to experience for for want of a better word Uh, and then there was also just the physical and mental challenge of deciding you know in my 30s I'm going to do that and I'm gonna succeed so it was a challenge if you want uh, a life challenge Um, but I don't think I ever realized it would end up in a you know, in a, in a conflict, um, it was more of a, as for many reservists, it's something you did at the weekend in holidays, pushed yourself, knew that it was a possibility. But as, as I was told by the, um, the recruiting officer at the time, it's uh, the last time that the uh, reserves were called up was for, this is before 9-11. Well, I think it was the last time the reserves were called up was for the Korean War. Which is quite reassuring. (laughs) Was quite reassuring, but then obviously 9/11 happened, and things changed, and reservists were called up for Iraq and Afghanistan for active combat duty. So, and how did you feel about that? um, So it's it's called intelligent mobilization, and you do have a you do have a you sometimes you don't have a say, but sometimes you can have a say. Um, I I kind of felt at first I felt this was an adventure. Um, as I imagine many before me have felt, um, but as it got closer, it was 2009, so it was the you know the, the summer of no helicopters and what's called Panther's Claw, Palang, which was a real kind of big, a uh, big kind of mobilized thrust into the heart of what was then Taliban-controlled territory, and um, it was quite bloody. And, and when I realized what I was entering into, I think I probably, I think I know I had second thoughts very much so, but. I was committed. Um, so yeah. So it was a it was a complex set of motivations that took me out there. If I knew what I knew now and having been on that kind of political journey that I have been since I served, um, would I go again? No, I wouldn't. Um, but I don't regret the experience that I that I it's part of me, part of my life. I can't deny it. And I wouldn't I wouldn't deem to, you know, you take the good with the bad, but um If I knew what I knew now, which is obviously a hypothetical, I probably wouldn't, because I think I'd find it morally, very morally, uh, almost impossible to to reconcile with where my kind of morality and politics lie now. Does that make me immoral for going back then? No, because I made decisions based on a certain set of, of life choices, outlooks and perspectives, which I was able to marry up with my kind of ethical framework at the time. But you go through life and you learn.
0: What was it at the time that was different?
1: I think I bought him. I, you know, I bought more into the notion then that um, Afghanistan had been let down by the West after it had been used as a as a proxy in a proxy war against the Soviet Union. Um, That we'd flooded with arms and training. You've all seen Rambo three. It it was obviously not quite like that, but you've all seen. I'm sure you've seen the film. Um, And then once uh, the once the the Soviets were defeated. Uh, speech marks um, we forgot it was it was no longer of use to us and the country imploded into what was called a failed state and I felt that there was a need to go back and and help the people of Afghanistan as well as stop you know another 7th of July bombing which I was in London for you know Mm. I have friends and family live in London I didn't want to see that happen and I felt that you could um you could do two things at the same time, stop that from happening and also go back and help rebuild Afghanistan, which was how it was portrayed. The, the grim reality is that's not what happened. Yes, money went into Afghanistan, but the, the overwhelming majority of the money went into Afghanistan, went into bombing it and uh, and to, in a military occupation, not in rebuilding. Um, people might say, well, you're very naive for a politician, but well, I haven't always been a politician. <laughs> <laughs>
0: We'll come back to your your becoming a politician later. do Do you still think that that moral case was was strong at the time? It's just that it wasn't pursued in the right way or have you changed your mind about whether or not there was a moral case?
1: No I mean I, I think I think you know perhaps the bits that have fallen into place now is a kind of post-imperial framework for looking at um, if you want Western interventionism, Western economic policy in a kind of post so-called post-imperial world it's, it empire empire physical empire hasn't ended in many ways if you look at the if you look at the amount of of land mass that we that, that still is you know owned by the crown or a dependency on 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 the, the british state, then i think it, it it comes to more than all the british isles put together we own a big chunk of the of the world out there still so in that sense empires did exist you have tax havens and Gibraltar and other bits around the world, um, but in the sense that the economic, uh, the kind of the self-interest and the economic self-interest and how that plays out in global markets, in extractionism from these countries, we can see. You know, we've been doing it for, for decades. We can see the Chinese now moving in to do that in other countries. I'm not trying to make any kind of um, judgment of the West on its own, but this is this is what's been happening. And I think when you look at Afghanistan in the context of a kind of post-imperial narrative. You can you can see whether it's Iraq, Afghanistan, Korea, Vietnam. There's a kind of pattern, um, and there's also, as well, I'll be really honest here, a sense that the lives of the lives of, of people from certain parts of the world have have um, have less value attached to them. I think we can see that with COVID. I think we can see that on the climate crisis. Um, I think we can see that with refugees coming in here. You know?
0: And why do why do you disagree with that? Why do you disagree with that position? What, your, your, is anti imperialism a value for you? Is that an overriding value, or is it? Are you anti imperialist for some other fundamental value?
1: I'm pro human. I mean, pro humanity. You know, imperialism imperialism is in, in, in inherently linked to racist structures. You you justify the extractionism. You justify slavery. You justify colonialism um, by the fact of of of, of white or english or european exceptionalism there's a hierarchy of races of which your uh, subjective well-being is 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 worth more than theirs than theirs and their suffering and so therefore you can justify you know sucking out their natural resources keeping them in poverty bombing them if necessary so i see the two go hand in hand and and so therefore that, that imperialism is anti-humanist in many ways because it gives a hierarchy of, 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 of racial importance. Races are a pseudoscience. They don't exist. There is one race, the human race. Um, and it's interesting now in Parliament, we have you know not just the hard right, it was just the hard right, but we now have Conservative MPs standing up, I was there in Parliament now, parroting the far right, demanding that we leave the UN Convention and the human's right and human rights legislation Basically, try, those who are trying to put us out of human rights legislation and UN Convention on Human Rights um, and put us into a British bill of human rights. This, is basically, this will basically give a hierarchy on human rights. The whole point about human rights after the Second World War was that we understood that any kind of race exceptionalism leads to a dark place, leads to what happened in the Second World War and, and those concentration camps and mass terror. So, you know, human rights was, was developed to say that all human beings must be treated equally. Well, we can see now that increasingly that were, they were fine words, but politically, I don't think they're under attack at the moment.
0: What is it in your own experiences that's, that's led you, do you think, looking back and analysing yourself um, to this belief in universal humanity, this conviction? Is it an intellectual thing or is it based on your, your experiences, your family background, your personal experiences? What 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 drove you towards this value?
1: Um... I'd say it was. I'd say it's. Um, it's been complex. Um, I'm a big. I'm a, I, If I think about it, obviously, I was brought up in a in a in a in a kind of Christian background. As, as most of us who've been brought up in the UK were, my school, you know, I I learned hymns, I learned about the Bible, and so on. There is a there. You can extract a human, a humanist. I'd say a, you can extract a pro humanity teaching from christianity there's no two ways about that um depends on what interpretation of it you take but you definitely can as you can with most religions um then i'd say um very much in terms politically as i began to understand about racism and its effects on you know part of my family on myself i think having an understanding of well how would you combat racism well seeing all people politically with you know, with with human rights, you know, one race, one human race, is a kind of a good concept to be able to get your head around how you tackle racism and the idea, the pernicious ideas of racism. Um, another influence would no doubt have been science fiction. I'm a big science fiction fan, and 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 obviously, you know, humanity's capacity for both good and bad. But you know, being able that that science fiction which looks at um, humanity through the lens of what is possible. a good from a good perspective there's dark science fiction obviously but there's also science fiction which talks about humanity's capacity um to to grow and to expand so i think there have been a number of influences on me that have brought me to this position political science fiction upbringing but um yeah off the top of my head that's what i would say has kind of led me to that kind of um, reasoning
0: you know, the strange thing on this podcast so far has been to hear any humanist who didn't mention science fiction as being a, <laughs> an important part of their moral education.
1: <laughs> I think it's played a massive, a massive part in in, in our, um, you know, I was just listening to, <laughs> I was just watching one of the Star Wars films the other day. And, and I was quite taken aback by the kind of pro, if you want, humanist or pro-life. It's obviously there are lots of different but the kind of the, the Jedi philosophy, you know, the wisdom that's in there, much of it is much of it will be, you know, I'm, I'm sure Plato would have been at home with some of the, the musings of the Jedi. So, you know, you can see how that has influenced George Lucas and the scriptwriters. Um, and you can see why the, the I guess if you want the hard right or the right kind of feel that there's a there's been a cultural war constantly waged on them. I understand what it, because this has, in, this has embedded itself into our culture alongside the more negative elements, there are. There are also elements inside popular culture which do expound these, for want of a better word, would be humanist concepts of of morality, uh, which I think is a good thing.
0: Do you think that's the way that popular culture is tending? I mean, it's an interesting point you made there. I. I I was at the Conservative Party conference because sort of Humanist UK goes to all the party conferences, and, and and there was I was talking to a Conservative, and he was talking about how the left control everything. You know, the left control everything. And I said, "Oh, what do you mean? The Conservatives are in government, and you know, the Conservatives control you know lots of media, as Conservative." And he said, "Yes, but all the other things like popular culture and literature and 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 you know society in other ways and academia." And I thought, "Gosh, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I'd never thought of it that way." Yeah, well, there's two
1: things on that. The first is. The, the one is that that, that that media consumption is changing, and I don't think that the inbuilt whatever whatever the kind of um, if there are inbuilt biases towards a more and I'm going to use the word not left but liberal uh, approaches to um, to how we should be with one another, act with each other, value systems. Um, then they could change as, as consumption. We know that you know people being radicalized through. YouTube and incel activity and so on. So how people consume, and I don't quite know, I have the fears that many other people do, that how media is to be consumed in the future could be far more in silos which allow for more radicalisation which will change the algorithms that are being used to to guide people to certain content. That could have, and probably is having impacts on our politics and our value system, which may may benefit the right. Uh, in some ways. We don't know yet. Um, It's something that we obviously have to take a great deal of interest in and and keep across. But the other thing is those values, they are not left wing values, frankly. They are liberal values, liberal with a small L. And that liberal instinct has been for a long time an influence on both socialist thinking and liberal thinking and conservative thinking. It's only, I think, now in the last... Uh, 40 or so years that that can be seen by those same conservatives as left-wing thinking these are liberal values he's talking about that he's angry about they're not left-wing you know to describe the national trust talking about the history of many of the stately homes in this country that were funded or paid for either directly from slavery or empire or colonialism or indirectly by from the industries that Grew up, or funded, or bankrolled by um, the enriching powers of of slavery and empire, is not a controversial left wing issue. It's a piece of historical analysis which, yes, will be challenged in good history. But nonetheless, you know, make your case on historical terms using the financial and historical sources there to challenge that. Don't wa- don't write it off as left wing propaganda trying to rewrite British history. So what he calls left wing, um, kind of domination of of, uh, of of our media and culture, I would simply say is, is small l liberalism. And if he's got a problem with that, then that tells you more about
0: the Conservative Party and the ideologies that they have adopted. Well, about him anyway, about that individual. <laughs> yes,
1: yes, yes, yes.
0: yes of course. Hi, this is Andrew, appearing halfway through the podcast to remind you that this is a podcast from Humanist UK, the national charity working on behalf of non-religious people to advance free thinking and promote a tolerant society. If you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about the humanist approach to life, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider giving us your support or joining as a member. green policies and green ideas have been a very prominent part of your politics and your public life uh, for the last few years. Are these uh, personal priorities?
1: Yes, they are, because it's it's um, it's a, it's based on rationalism, on scientific, rational approaches. You, one of the, the beautiful things about, um, if you want climate physics and mathematics, is the, it's very difficult with kind of pure math and pure physics to kind of kind of decry them as being on a, a left wing agenda as some no doubt would. Now clearly the lens through which you see those mathematics uh, and the lens through which you then apply them that's a different matter but the actual mathematics themselves are you know, are, are what they are and I think with, the, with, with climate science you can't for want of a better choice of words bullshit climate science. Climate science doesn't negotiate with you. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't give you a a period of fudging, it it is what it is. And the climate physics are really clear. Uh, And as far as climate science can be clear that there is an existential threat facing us given the best that science knows. And there are a series of increasing probabilities that we are heading to some kind of climate catastrophe. And I think post-cop we're on course for 2.4 degrees centigrade, not 1.5. We've seen the heat domes, the firestorms, the the, the floods on 1.1 degrees. Now, you know, double that and add um, another 2.2 2 degrees. And, and that's where we're heading for. I just, you know, the mind boggles. So I think some of my green, some of my kind of green politics is based on the fact that we as politicians can be very bad sometimes at listening to the science and listening to the scientific community uh, and then acting on that. So um, I also have a daughter uh, and I also think about the future, her future. I think about what kind of world she will inherit, as any parent does. But I think about the world that she will inherit, which will likely be increasingly unstable, which will you know, possibly on the course that we're on, uh, mean food shortages, a collapse of biodiversity, um, and, and all manner of problems, which increasingly we've seen with COVID, our societies are fragile. No matter how uh, hubristic we believe them to be and, and resilient, the fact of the matter is they're not resilient enough what we think is coming uh, and so that does drive me that kind of rational approach to here's what the science says what are we going to politically do about it um unfortunately i remember sitting you know as the shadow um business uh, uh energy and industrial strategy shadow cabinet member and talking to our members of the shadow cabinet and i remember you know saying we have to up our game on the climate and our economic policy has to integrate into what's good for the climate and ecosystems. And uh, one kind of member popped up and said, well, but would it win us votes, though, Clive? That's the question. Now, clearly, as a politician, you have to always ask that question. But it does reveal a mindset,
0: which is... Mm, it's sort of a symptom of the problem, isn't it? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Anyway, it's a comp- how do you, you can't compromise with the kind of the the, the the kind of climate science on this. It is what it is, and then you have to. That's where leadership comes in, political leadership, saying you know we have listened to the evidence, we have listened to the experts, and it's now our duty as politicians to begin to change, recommend within our democracy that certain things change, um, to be able to enable us to achieve those objectives, and that has fundamentally not happened and still isn't happening.
0: Do you think that that's primarily a failure of long termism or a pr- primarily a failure in um, immoral leadership? Or what is it that's causing
1: a combination? But I would say the key failing is uh, uh, a failing of of, this, of of capitalism and of the capitalism that we currently have. Capitalism is extractive by its very nature. So capital gets to extract, you know, value from resources. From labour, And because of this particular variation of capitalism that we've had for the last 40 or 50 years, it's highly extractive and motivated by profit. It's a machine, if you want, for, for stripping resources and consuming them, consumerism. And the checks and balances that were once there were stripped away in the 1980s and 90s and have never been replaced to the degree that we now have an economic system where even the billionaires don't feel they control it. Um, you know, it's, it's a runaway machine and governments have stripped themselves of the capability of imposing democratic control over that economic system. That needs to happen as a, as a matter of rapid urgency. And until it does, um, I don't foresee us being able to solve the problems that are before us. So I see this in- inherently as a problem of capitalism and a, a failure of our democracy to um, impose itself on that mm. on that system.
0: So if there were leadership to be to be shown that um, improved that, it would be leadership to advance a greater power for democracy, a greater power for political checks and balances. Yes. You think there's a big democratic deficit right now in our society?
1: Well, hey, well, here's a question. I'll I, I kind of pose a question back to you. Does a, a rational democratic society, which we in this country, in the European Union and allegedly the United States and many other countries, let's just, let's just put you know countries which we may not consider as democracies to the side for a moment, but should we not have a democratic self-interest in preserving the planetary ecosystem and, and life support systems for ourselves and future generations? And the answer is yes, but clearly that's being short-circuited by an economic system over which we have no control. If we had control of that economic system, then a rational democratic um, collective, uh, ie, this country would no doubt, as they are saying, we're very concerned about this. We want to do something. It's then the job of political leaders to say, okay, these are your objectives. You want to do this. However, there is a there is a price to pay for that. And then you set those you set those various prices out alongside the science and say, what decisions should we take together? That may mean that there is less flying taking place. It may mean that we. We have let we have, let, you know, we consume less resource. It may mean that we share out what resources we do have better, both domestically and internationally. But we need to make a series of decisions based on the evidence before us and that, de- that democratically we can take. That isn't happening at the moment. And so ultimately, yes, it is a, a democratic failure. Um, I would say climate climate change is a, yeah, is a function of a failing of our democracy.
0: Is it a fundamental conviction for you that if people are given that opportunity to make those decisions and to uh, discuss together or this in this way, that that would solve all problems? Because, you know, the counterpoint might be that people individually and collectively might be just as short-termist as capitalists are.
1: Yes. And, and I think this is
0: where... Um, uh, you don't the, you believe that? It sounds like you've got quite a lot of confidence in, 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 in people.
1: Yes, I do. Because, well... Either you're a Democrat or you're not, <laughs> and, and and you know, either you know, you know, demo, you know, humanism is a has, I think, a kind of democratic component at its core, um, and either you have faith in your fellow human beings. I say faith, belief, confidence, confidence. Yes, of course, confidence in your fellow human beings. You don't, of course, there are, are people who will make bad decisions, but we have to believe collectively we can make decisions in the best interest of all. And I think that there's two ways of looking at this. There are those now calling for a, um, uh, what would you call it, um, a referendum. How could I forget the term referendum? <laughs>
0: don't,
1: don't say it. <laughs> there are those on the right, Nigel Farage and others, you're seeing this now, who think believe that we should have a referendum on net zero, okay? Um, and I would argue against that. And I, the reason I would argue against that isn't because I don't believe in, in having a democratic debate, but it's because of the level playing field. that We don't have a level playing field. We saw on Brexit, uh, we saw you know, two wings of the establishment and the associated kind of media um, and political energies and powers they could bring to that table fighting it out. And one of the things that came out of that referendum, I remember very clearly during the referendum from people was, I don't know what to do. I don't know who to believe. Because the debate wasn't taking place in a kind of rational, evidence-based way. It was, you know, 300 million for the NHS, 350 million pounds for the NHS. And it was money here or you'll lose this many jobs or this much. The economy will shrink by this much. No, it won't. It will grow by this much. People didn't know what to do. But on something called deliberative democracy, which is something now which is which is moving across democracies, I think it's a kind of renewal of our democratic principles, and it's almost like a jury. And what you do is you take a cross section of society, you bring them together, as you well know, Andrew, and rather than just have the, the like the newspapers being able to kind of smash this way and smash that, you have both sides of the argument presented in 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 the court of the people, if you want, yeah, uh, with the with the experts then giving. Uh, independent evidence and then people are led to make a decision and most on most of those limited democracies that I have come across the decisions that have been taking have been extremely positive and progressive because yeah. even where those people have come to come there skeptically on these issues when they've heard the evidence when they've listened to the experts on both sides they've often found a compromise which takes the issue forward and I think Unfortunately, in our politics, compromise, partly because the voting system we have, just isn't an option. It's about winner takes all and imposing your will. So I think there is hope for democracy. But it, I think it has to be democracy, which is, in a way, a, a kind of a rational, logical approach to democracy, rather than the, the current way that decisions are made, which is a, a veneer of democracy, in my opinion.
0: I gave um, evidence to the Jersey Citizens' Assembly, the deliberative uh, citizens' jury on assisted dying. And it was extremely impressive as a process. You know, they were a very well supported cross section of of citizens who received, um, you know, evidence from all sorts of different views. Um, I think it went very well because they came out agreeing with what I had suggested. So that's why I think. It <laughs> yeah, went very well but, but, in but, Ireland. You know, yeah. is the other oh, one. Right. You know, they, they made you know they they changed you know
1: dec- you know a, a very old piece of legislation. but they had a
0: sort of society wide conversation about that. They I mean, did. that was quite a good example of media media being used well and uh, you know transparently and objectively and everyone yes. sort of. But it's a small society, smaller than yes. The UK.
1: And I think it, I think in many ways the the capture of our um, Media by vested interests, and it's, it's, it's not just a left-wing thing. I mean, you know, the the, the, the vast bulk of um, newspaper publication this country are not friends of the Labour Party, not really friends of the Liberal Democrats or the Greens. They, they they promote uh, a more overtly right-wing agenda. The the frame and the lens through which they set out these arguments is often skewed um, as common sense, and yet it, it very much isn't. So. You know, these are meant to be the mechanisms through which information in our democracy is, is transmitted to the public to be able to make informed decisions on, on how they vote. Nothing could be further from the truth.
0: What was it that took you into politics? I mean, you've said how you you went into um, territorials out of a desire for Mm. camaraderie. You've said that you got involved in green issues because of this sort of existential worry about our future. It's plain that you've got um, very clear political convictions and ideas um, Mm. that you've uh, laid out. Um, They're obviously personal, but also I think you're you, you were an economist, weren't you, as a student, so you, that, mm. that clearly is all of um, part of your worldview, but what was it that took you into formal politics, you know, getting involved um, as a politician?
1: Understanding that um, if I wanted to see change, I had to, I had to be a part of that change myself, try to make that change happen, because um, I was a journalist, Um, and I remember in 2010, with the advent of the coalition, uh, I was very uh, taken by the fact that we would have a conservative administration. I I grew up as a child of Thatcher, and I didn't think it was going to end well, uh, and I was concerned for the future. And so, you know, I I remember telling my um, political editor, I don't just want to tell the public... How long the rope of austerity is that's going to hang them? I want to help cut the rope of austerity. And and she said, well, that's not what the BBC is here for, is it? And I said, no. <laughs> and it kind of we kind of kind of made I made my decision then that I was going to be far more hands on. Um, and I suppose you know I, another part of that is probably also you know those influences. My dad was a trade unionist. My granddad um, was also a, a, a lifelong trade unionist as well. Those were influences, but I think also as um, a young black person, I, I also realised, a young black working class person, I also realised that so many of the things that I had benefited from as a child growing up, it wasn't a perfect world, but things that I had benefited from, a grant, um, a council house, um, a state education that equipped me for, for university and life beyond all of those things were forged by politics um, and that there were lots of other choices, suboptimal choices that could have been taken if there hadn't been people that stood up long before I was born even and articulated those cases, those issues and those arguments. And it felt incumbent upon me as someone who had benefited from that system. Um, it did have its faults, but benefited nonetheless to continue to pursue that for others um, and to make sure it remained in place and 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 deepened. Um, I don't know how successful I have been, but it's an ongoing project.
0: <laughs> Camaraderie of service, opposing imperialism and racism, universal humanity, the climate threat, and the necessity of politics. Clive Lewis, thank you for telling us what you believe.
1: Thank you so much, Andrew.
0: That was Clive Lewis speaking for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is a weekly podcast from Humanists UK, and this was the fifth episode of the fifth season. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday. If you'd like to support the podcast, find out more about Humanism, Humanists UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more on the Humanists UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see there, please consider joining up as a supporter or member. You can also find out more about humanism by purchasing the Sunday Times best-selling book, The Little Book of Humanism, available in all good bookshops.